0: Good morning and welcome to Walking with Jesus Through the Word, one chapter per day. I'm Jason Van Bemmel, the pastor at Forest Hill Presbyterian Church. It's our 707th day together, day 707, and it brings us to Luke 21. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love, for your steadfast love, for your faithfulness that is unfailing. Father, you keep your promises throughout every generation, and your promises are yes in Christ, and through Christ we say amen to you, to your glory, for your faithfulness and goodness to us. Be our teacher and our guide through Luke 21 this morning. Write it on our hearts, help us to understand it and respond to it in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Luke 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be here left. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am He, and the time is at hand do not go after them and when you hear of wars and tumults do not be afraid for these things must first take place but the end will not be at once then he said to them nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near then let those who are in judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter in it for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs. In sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity, because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told a parable. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Luke 21. So this is a very famous and very much misunderstood teaching of Jesus regarding the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the second coming of Jesus and the judgment of the whole world. Now, remember yesterday we were in Isaiah 26, and that's very helpful as background. Before that, we were in Isaiah 25, which is also very helpful as background, because remember I said that there's a perspective on the New Testament day of salvation from the Old Testament where it's called a collapsed horizon. It all looks like it's happening all at once. It all looks like one day. And it is one day in the sense that once things are set in motion, it's it's a fait accompli, as they say. It's, it's, it's a finished reality in the purposes of God once Jesus comes into the world and God becomes man. But it's, in fact, a day that stretches out over 2,000 plus years. And that's a similar kind of collapsed horizon view that's here in Luke 21. So first of all, we have this widow's offering at the very beginning of the chapter. If I were dividing the chapter. I might put the widow's offering at the end of chapter 20 and start chapter 21, Um, but it's here because it's in the temple and it's while they were in the temple and people are speaking about the temple that this teaching about, which begins with the destruction of the temple, comes about. But very quickly, the widow's offering, uh, this, this woman gives everything she has. She trusts God fully and completely. She has very little and she's willing to trust God with exactly what she has. And that's more than someone who gives out of their abundance and out of their excess. When we're giving to the Lord and to his purposes, the Bible doesn't require you to empty out your bank account and drain all your savings and drain your retirement accounts and give it all to the church. That is not What God commands or requires or expects. You're not hearing me say that. That's what charlatans on TV say. They promise you that if you empty out your bank account and send them your last penny, God will return it to you tenfold. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying here is sometimes we get too comfortable. We have enough. We have more than enough. We have an abundance. All of our needs are met and then some, right? We have nice homes, we have nice cars, we're able to take vacations, we have a retirement fund, and so out of the excess, we'll give some to God, kind of as a a tip that we might give to a waiter at the end of a good meal. And even the 10% tithe, which I think is a biblical standard, can be, for many of us, just sort of comfortable. We can can easily give 10% to God and not really feel it, not really have it be sacrificial, and I do think we're being called to trust God with sacrificial giving, giving that stretches us and giving that causes us to be in a place where we're trusting in God uh, and, and we're doing things that even look foolish in the eyes of the world with our giving. So the destruction of the temple, they're looking at the temple, right? It's adorned with noble stones and offerings, and they're looking the disciples some of them are speaking of how of how beautiful it is and how well adorned it is and this temple had taken a long time to build and it was one of the most beautiful things in that whole part of the world and it was one of the it was kind of the crowning jewel of king herod's construction projects and he had many and jesus says as for these things that you see the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down And so Jesus is making a statement about the destruction of the temple. That's where this begins. The temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And his disciples ask him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And so Jesus answers and says, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, the time is at hand, Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. One thing that's clear from the biblical teaching about the second coming of Jesus is that when Jesus comes again, when the final day of judgment comes, no one will miss it. It won't be a secret. It won't be like, wait, did Jesus come back? I don't know. Was that him over there? I don't know. Was this event here the second coming of Jesus? I don't know. No, if Jesus will come back and everyone will know. And Jesus makes it very clear later. Everyone's going to see him. Everyone's going to know. Philippians tells us that on that day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So until the day comes when everybody openly sees Jesus and every knee bows in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, Jesus hasn't come again yet. And also, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that when that day comes, death will be no more. Death will be swallowed up and we will be transformed and we will never die again. So until there's no more death, Jesus hasn't come again. Now, why am I belaboring this point? Because many people, not many people, but there's a small group within Reformed circles who've taken these teachings here in Luke And there's a parallel passage in Matthew and uh, in Mark. And they take these passages and they want to say that because Jesus is talking about the second coming in the context of the destruction of the temple, which we know happened in A.D. 70, that that's when Jesus came back. Jesus came back in A.D. 70 and his judgment on Jerusalem with the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem was the judgment day, the day of the Lord that was promised in scripture. And so everything has been fulfilled and everything has been accomplished. And they call that, that teaching is called preterism. Preterism is a false teaching. It's a a very false teaching because it denies one of the key essentials of the Christian faith. And that is that we have a hope for a future expectation That Jesus is going to come again, that the dead will be raised, that all death and all evil will be ended permanently, and that we will live forever in a new heavens and a new earth with resurrected bodies where there is no more evil, no more death, no more dying, and no more sorrow. We're not there yet, if you haven't noticed. We still live in a world where people die, where people do evil things, where the nations rage against God and against his lordship, where they have not been judged, okay, So that means we need to understand carefully what Jesus is talking about here, because he's actually talking about two different things. But the one is a foreshadowing and an anticipation of the other. And we know now in history that these two events are separated by some 2,000 years. In the year 2070, uh, when I'll be 96 years old if I'm still around, um, that will be the 2,000-year anniversary of the destruction of Jerusalem. So we know that it's been a long time. Okay, so let's dig into this very quickly. I'm sorry, it's not going to be super quick because it's tricky. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence. There will be great terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness, etc., etc. All of this, I do believe, happened before AD 70. Um, Now, it's still happening in the world, but those who heard Jesus they were arrested. They were put on trial. They were put to death. Think of Stephen. Think of James. Think of Peter and Paul and, and Andrew. Think of all of those apostles and evangelists and leaders in the early church who were all persecuted prior to A.D. 70. And in those early decades of the church, it was the Jewish leadership that was leading the persecution against Christians and the Romans went along with it in order to please the Jewish leadership. Now, the Jewish leadership leading the persecution of Christians is going to end abruptly at AD 70. And the Jewish leadership is going to be judged at AD 70 when the temple is destroyed. So he's telling, he's encouraging them to be brave, brave. And to not be afraid and to trust God to give them the words that are said. If you want an example of God giving you the words to be said, look at Acts chapter 7 and Stephen, the first martyr, and his beautiful speech before the Sanhedrin. This is an exact fulfillment of what Jesus promises here in Luke 21, that the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And the Holy Spirit did. And we know from historical accounts that Paul and Peter and Andrew and others were given similar very strong and very powerful and compelling words to say when they were put on trial. But they were all put to death. Which is interesting because Jesus promises not a hair of your head will perish. Well, how is that true if they were stoned to death or beheaded or crucified upside down? Well, because they were received into glory. And they will receive resurrection bodies. Their souls were received into glory. And they will receive resurrection bodies. If the only thing that happened was that their souls were received into glory and there's no future resurrection of the body, then their bodies were killed permanently by those who persecuted them. But if there is a future resurrection and they're given a resurrection body, then not a hair on their head really perished. They were just temporarily physically dead until the resurrection, and and spiritually always alive before God. So when you see Jerusalem, verse twenty, surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant, and those who are nursing infants in those days. Again, all of this is about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's pretty explicitly about the destruction of Jerusalem. Then look at what he says in verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Even to this day, while it is a Jewish nation, Israel, that technically has political oversight, over Jerusalem, Jerusalem is still trampled underfoot by Gentiles, by um, Arabs, the Palestinians, um, by some Christians, and they're not Jewish people. So the Jews do not have Jerusalem as an intact uh, capital city that they that they control completely. It's trampled underfoot until until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now. What we know now is that this times of the Gentiles has lasted for almost 2,000 years. It's a time, if you want more information on it, you can go to Romans 11, which I recommended to you uh, a couple of days ago when we were last, I think, in Luke's gospel. I was telling you that that's a good place to go to get more information about what some people call replacement theology, or is better understood as covenant theology, the consistency of there being one people of God. There's a time when the, the natural branches, that is the Jewish people, are cut off from the tree of salvation until the wild offshoots of olive trees are, are grafted in. That's the Gentiles. And then when they're all brought in, then, then Jewish people will be regrafted back in. That's in Romans 11. Again, you can read that um, on your own. And then this is after the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled at the end of verse 24, And then there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the raves, waves, people fainting in fear with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is after the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So this is still yet sometime in the future. Verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man. Coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Whatever else happened in AD 70, that verse did not happen in AD 70. Historically, it is nonsensical to say historically that anybody saw the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. There's not a single eyewitness who said, and then Jesus showed up. And that's what Jesus meant. He's meant, it's very clear, like it's not going to be something you can miss. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And he says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Again, when Jesus comes again, it's the final redemption of God's people. Romans 8 talks about the redemption of our bodies as being our full adoption as sons and romans 8 tells us that we groan until that day comes that day has not come yet our bodies have not been fully redeemed yet they will in the resurrection they will he says here look at the fig tree and all the trees as soon as they come out in leaf you see for yourselves you know that summer is already near so so also when you see these things taking place you know that the kingdom of god is near Then he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. What does he mean by that? Two things. First of all, the destruction of Jerusalem is going to come within a generation. Barely. It's going to come 40 years about after this takes place. So that is within a generation. But also, this generation of believers of those who belong to Jesus are not going to pass away because we're going to go to heaven to be with him and await our resurrection bodies. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, in the future, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, but Jesus' words will last forever. We will not be lost. We will be raised. There is no believer that is ever lost because uh, Jesus never breaks his word now again there's clearer evidence even more in verses 34 and 35 here that this is not talking about ad 70 exclusively part of it is but not all of it but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth So I want to say preterists make a lot of hay out of verse 32, where they say, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And they say, see, it's so clear. This generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So all has to have taken place. It's so clear. And I would simply come back and say, verse 35 is equally as clear that this day will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. I'm sorry, but people in China and India and Japan, the Native Americans living in North and South America, my ancestors, the barbarian pagans of far northern Europe, they didn't know anything about what was happening in Jerusalem in AD 70. It meant nothing to them. It changed nothing for them. And Jesus says that his second coming is going to come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So there is a way to explain Verse 32, as I've already done, in a way that doesn't require preterism. The destruction of Jerusalem does take place within a generation chronologically, but also the generation of believers never pass away. We're kept alive in the Lord. So there's a way to understand that that doesn't require preterism. There's no way to understand verse 35 that doesn't eliminate preterism as an option. Follow me on that? It will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Preterism cannot be true because AD 70 is not an event that came upon everyone who dwells on the face of the whole earth. And also, verse 36, Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. There's nobody. Believers who did endure A.D. 70 and who survived that, they weren't then standing before the Son of Man. They went on with their lives and they died and their souls went, but that's the same as all believers since the resurrection of Jesus. So anyway, that's just textual evidence from Luke 21 that I've emphasized why full preterism, full preterism as it's known, cannot possibly be true, and rather a view that says part of this refers to A.D. 70, but then the final part of it has to refer to the second coming of Jesus. It is a best way to understand this passage, and more importantly, it harmonizes with the rest of Scripture, including what we looked at over the last two days on Isaiah 25 and 26, and 1 Corinthians 11, and Romans 8, and 1 Thessalonians 4, and everything the Bible teaches us about the end of the world negates a belief in preterism. Now, you may have thought, why would you spend so much time on preterism? Because it's out there. And I don't want you to be confused if you run into it. I don't want you to be led astray if anybody tries to engage you in that conversation. Because it's important to understand and keep things straight. AD 70 was an important event. It was the judgment on the Jewish leadership. It was the taking away of the kingdom from the Jewish people and giving it to the church. It was the fulfillment of the parable of the vineyards from Luke 20. But it wasn't yet the final end. We're waiting for Jesus, and he is coming for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us life. Thank you that Jesus is coming again to bring us home. We rejoice in that coming day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for joining me for Luke 21. And tomorrow we're going to go back to Isaiah, picking up with Isaiah 27. Hope you can join me for that. And I do hope you have a blessed day in the Lord.